0: There we go. Either this will work or it will not work. I appreciate the guys trying to help me with this. This is really touchy. I'm going to have to stand right here. If I stand right here, at, oh, I, don't know what, I don't know what it's doing. Got a mind of its own. I appreciate the guys trying to help me. The more and more I fool with technology, the, the wiser Frank gets. <laughs> if this doesn't work, that's okay. We can ban- abandon ship. Um, I want to indulge myself just slightly and kind of give you a report and let you in on a little something that you can help with, if you if you so desire. Um, Alexander Soa, it, please, I think on Facebook his name is Soa Alexander. If you want to Facebook friend him, he is a friend of ours that we met in 2004. He's the one who we, we got Daniel and Lydia from and he takes care of a of a lot of people and I wanted to I wanted to show you just a, maybe a few pictures. Uh, this is a group that he took in. They're very superstitious in Ghana and and if anyone has any sort of disability, then they will uh, they will be ostracized by society. They won't, they won't uh, deal with them in the marketplace or hire them. And even um, um, Alexander, who is right there, uh, he kind of takes flack for it. People look at him differently. And, uh, and even look at him as cursed, since he doesn't even have children yet, he and his wife. Very superstitious. But he's taken this group uh, a group and helped them. Here's another picture of this group here. Some of them have uh, withered or deformed appendages, hands, feet. Some of them have dwarfism, things like that. And uh, what's happened is is that he was able to to help. He came up with an idea to uh, buy a coffee farm that they could work in and that they could then make money and, and provide for themselves. And uh, and there was a couple at my congregation who found out about this and, and sent a large, large check to buy that property and to fund that. And, um, and so they were able to support themselves. Uh, well, there's another girl. This is kind of a gruesome picture. Let's see here. Uh, this is Ahima. This is maybe uh, two or two, three years ago. Uh, she had, I don't know the name of this, but her, her eye was, was deformed and uh, had grown into kind of a, um, a cyst or a tumor of some kind and um, after consulting optometrists, they, she, she had to get it, she needed to get it removed and Alex, she was in Alexander's care and uh, she was able to have a surgery, he was able to do the research of how much it would cost and uh, let's see here let me find after, this is this is what she looks like now and she's doing a lot better and, and Alexander, he plainly says that those who contributed, it cost about I think the number's about $25,000 to have that procedure, uh, that it saved her life. It saved her life. Now, there's another little boy named, named. Uh, well, here, let me tell you what. First, Alexander. Oh, boy. Alexander, just so you know who he is, he went to the preaching school there in Kumasi, Ghana. He's an evangelist. He self-supports himself by farming. He's established and been instrumental in establishing several congregations. He, he lives in central Ghana and goes to the north and helps with an the orphanage there and other congregations there. And at the present, there's about a dozen or so that live with him and are under his care. And there are people that come and go as he helps them. Uh, there's one in particular who's going to be a doctor soon that came to him as a child. And he's helped he helps them become productive adults. And uh, just to give you an idea of who he is. Now, this is Anor. He is six years old. He has, if I can remember the term, and I'm not a doctor, frontal encephalus seal. That may be an incorrect spelling of the word. I don't know. But it's a huge growth. And I think in hearing my mom read it to me what it is, it's, it's a cyst growing out of a lesion. And uh, the cost for this is about 20000 which includes getting to Germany, him and his mother, And having the procedure done, he's already had a couple of surgeries that have not been successful. And so I wanted you to know that at first we found out how much it would cost, and they gave us the total in euros. And so we thought we had enough at first, but when you do the exchange rate, we didn't have enough. We were confused about which currency it was in. At first we had about 9,000 of the 20 that we needed. And recently, um, my congregation just last week, Gave about four thousand, a little over four thousand, and we still were short about five thousand to be able to to uh, uh, essentially save this little boy's life as well. I just wanted you to know about this because sometimes we can we can think that because there's so many people in need, we we end up not doing that. And I want to thank those of you who are here who have helped in this. I know there are many of you here who have given with time and financially to this. I want you to know that it is a fruitful work that you have involved yourself in. And that as another lesson, I thought about doing today. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We have rich spiritual blessings when we are to help those who aren't able to help themselves right now. And like I said before, one of the boys—this is the expectation—one of the boys that that some of you helped in his early years is now about to finish medical school and will be in a position where he can now help this group. And I just want you to know that there's fruit that's that's coming from this, and there's great blessings. And so um, I wanted to give that as a little prefix onto the beginning of my lesson. And uh, so if, the, if this doesn't work anymore, that's okay. I'm going to do abandon this. But, oh boy. Okay, I'm going to abandon this because, because you have Bibles. You can turn to, turn to your Bibles here. I'll just stand here. When you, take a focused, when you take a focused look, and if you want to turn the light switch, it doesn't matter. When you take a focused look at the end of Jesus' life, and you look specifically, this is one of the things I like to do, you look specifically at a particular book and try to see how things fit in in a book. One of my favorite studies is when you look at the, most of the last of the book of John, in particular, when you look at John chapter 13 through 17 in your Bible, if your if your words are Jesus, the words of Jesus are in red, then you will see that most of that is Jesus speaking. And I am convinced that it's chronological, and that it all happened right after the institution of the Lord's Supper, and that they're in they're in the upper room during this period of time. And so, when you think about the idea of Jesus being in His last moments before He dies, this is the mindset of Christ. We look at John chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Look at verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And so, we have this outflow of words that are a show of love. He loved them and there were particular principles and things that they needed to hear. They needed to hear before He died. And that they needed to hear before having witnessed and experienced and felt the ramifications of the resurrection. It's a a key component of of their growth and their spiritual trajectory through the Gospel accounts, from the time that they're with Jesus, and they're not understanding when He says things like, we must go to Jerusalem and I must be arrested and tried and killed. He says it explicitly sometimes to them. And the theme through the book of Luke is where you find Jesus was, was pointed towards Jerusalem. He was headed towards Jerusalem. He was always on His way towards Jerusalem. Because he was headed towards the end. And he told them about it, but they still didn't understand. They still didn't get it. There were still some things that they didn't understand because they had not lived the reality of the resurrection yet. They had not seen the the essential components of the gospel message unfold and become a reality before them. And he knows this. He knows what they're about to go through. This very dark moment that's going to happen in, in the next day. And so he says these things to them. There are about seven points that I want to look at in John, John chapter 13 through 18. I want to look at three of them this morning and four of them tonight. All right. So I'm not trying to be too ambitious. I will to look at three of them right now and then four of them tonight. And I like to think of, I like to think of this section of Scripture as the words of a dying man. The words of a dying man. So let's look again. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come for God and was going to God. This was the end and he knew it. John is, is giving us this insight into what was going on in his mind at this time with his apostles, I believe, in the upper room. It's going to be very soon. Next week will be the 10-year anniversary of my father's death. And I cannot tell you the last things that he told me. I don't remember his last words. I do remember, though, that I took the opportunity in the months leading up to his death when he was very sick that I told him that I loved him. I took a moment. It, I was cognizant enough to realize I need to seize an opportunity when I have it, because I don't know if I won't have this opportunity anymore to just tell him how I feel about him, to tell him I love him and appreciate him as a father. And I took that moment. I remember that. But probably the greatest thing that he showed me before he died was was not that he gave any particular words. It was the way he acted. And in particular, let me, let me explain. I've been doing quite a bit of study and, and building up some lesson material that I don't know if I'm ever going to pull the trigger on, on, on bitterness. And, and bitterness is something that a lot of people have trouble with. They don't even realize that they have it. Because life has happened in a way that they didn't expect for it to happen. My, my father declined very quickly with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS one of the things that I never saw in him ever was bitterness. In fact, I remember, and this is, if I were to tell you the last thing that I remember him telling me that really mattered was when he was struggling with something physically and he kind of looked at me and he looked at his body and he just said, it's only the flesh. And that really is the idea that we need to, need to have is this, this spiritual look so that we are not consumed with the difficulties of the flesh and the things that don't go the way that we we think they should go. And that's sort of as an aside of taking the opportunity when you can. But that's what I remember from Him. You know, even if, uh, you know, when I leave, my mom doesn't want to tell me goodbye. She does not. And before I leave, she says she already misses me. And there are certain things that when we separate, you know, death is a separation, but even if I go on a trip or I go home or, or you know, someone goes to the store, sometimes they give instructions and they say, hey, the food is in the pantry and the, the dog needs to eat at 2 o'clock and at 6 o'clock. I don't know how dogs feed. I have a cat. He keeps his food out he's a job of the hut cat, but that's okay. Uh, but the point is this, is that when you're going to leave, very often we give instructions. And a lot of those instructions have to do with how we feel about that person. You give, you give somebody a hug. It's involuntary before you leave. And that's the way I like to think of this section of Scripture with Jesus and his apostles. And so, in, in these what I would call intensified instructions, the first, first point is he tells them to be a servant. Be a servant. John 13, starting in verse 3. John 13, starting in verse... uh, We'll start in verse 4. Sort of in the middle of the sentence. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What... Jesus uh, where am I? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Verse 12. So, when he had finished, well, so excuse me, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you say, Well, for so I am. For if I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus, the master, their rabbi, he humbles himself, washes their feet, and absolutely blows their minds. This is not something that they were expecting, and and it doesn't really necessarily make a lot of sense to them. But he impresses upon them what is at the heart of, of true leadership, which is servanthood. They needed to know They needed to know that when they met adversity, and they were going to meet it soon, that they needed to be able to check their egos and their arrogance at the door and not put themselves first, but be thinking of others first. Servant leadership means thinking of yourself last. You know, there's, uh, I think, maybe a misconception sometimes of what it means to be a a servant. And, And let me explain. One of the things I've always been impressed with about about Frank is is he cleans up when we have fellowship. Maybe because he feels so guilty about eating more than all of us. I don't know. But he does that. But that's not exactly servant leadership. That's more of the idea that we understand that no one of us, no one of us is too good to do certain tasks. But I think servant leadership is something that's a little bit maybe deeper or substantial than just not refusing to do something that maybe is a lowly task. But servant leadership being expressed by Jesus in the washing of feet and in that servant act is laying for us an even greater principle. The principle of thinking of myself last. Which means... Sometimes being a servant leader means that I am willing to give up of my time or my emotional sanity or my money or something like that. I prioritize myself last. And in thinking about the idea of Jesus being able to be a servant, my mind goes to a few places. My mind goes to Philippians chapter 2. We're told to have the mind of Christ who emptied himself, tangled the form of a servant. He had the mastery of self, what we call self control. He controlled his will and desires to make himself last or to make himself of such a low priority in his own eyes that his purpose was not about what he wanted but was about what the Father wanted for us by his actions. And so when I think of the example that Jesus sets, what what shows us the key to being a servant is the ability to have self-control. One of the things that you may find is if you're having trouble being a servant or even being loving to someone is you may have a self-control problem. When you cannot control yourself, in other words, when you have become the priority, when you are first, looking out for number one, right? When that becomes your priority, then you're not able to restrain your actions and master self in order to then be last so that others can be first. Jesus is showing them that principle. And so while it may include picking up the broom and wiping off the tables and doing the lowly tasks, it goes to the deeper principle of being willing and making the decision that I am going to make my own needs a a lesser priority than those around me. That's the key to servanthood. We are to focus on being instruments of God's blessings to others. Service to others is, you might think of it as a remedy to pride and ego. Point number two. We're still in John chapter 13. And I want to emphasize very quickly that I believe in around verse 30, Judas leaves. Which means that Judas was among the group whose feet were washed. Jesus didn't treat him differently than the others. He even served him. But when you go to verse 31, John 13, 31, Jesus gives the principle of, or the command really, of loving one another. He knew that because of what they were going to go through, and we find that evidenced some in what happens with Peter and being accused, and then he denies Christ... And then what would happen later, knowing that, as far as we can tell, John was the only one who was not put to death for his his faith but died of old age. He knew they were going to face difficulty, tribulation, persecution, death, the pressures of what would happen because of their faith, which is one of the evidences. I have a, a series of lessons on what Paul went through that is evidence for the veracity and the truthfulness of the gospel everything that Paul was willing to go through for it. Jesus knew that they were going to go through these things. And so He charges the apostles to love one another. He knew that the difficulties would divide the sheep from the goats. And so as to not totally and uh, and once and for all scatter the sheep, He wanted them to take on what some think of as the true seal of discipleship. The true seal of discipleship is that we love one another. You start in verse 31. John 13, 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will see me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and I want to skip down to chapter 15 to to tie in another passage to this theme John 15 and verse 11 John 15.11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And so, really dovetailing with this theme of, of servanthood is the basic command to love one another. And you know, it's not, it's not in my notes, but there's a, a place in Luke where they're having a dispute at about this time where they're asking Jesus, who is the greatest? And they're having a dispute over that. And I believe that right, right after that, we have it flowing into this washing of the feet and then the command to do what He says and to love one another. And that that's how people will know that, uh, that they are His disciples. You know, when you have the idea of loving one another, that seems pretty straightforward. One of the better known parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan was countercultural. It was the idea of loving what some people would call unlovable or that it would be socially, socially off in some way to love this person. But we find the Samaritan loving this one. The golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others, this is sort of a, a paraphrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. I heard a great lesson um, earlier this year by Chuck, Chuck Webster where he talked about and challenged the idea of who the others are. Who are the others? The others are the people who maybe don't share the same culture as we do, or they don't, they don't talk like we or look like us. Maybe they're difficult. They're the people we don't think of immediately as someone that we will associate ourselves with. There are those who we think of as they're the others. They're the ones who are apart from us. But to an extent, it is easier to love someone that you don't really know than it is to love someone that you do know. Because the people that you do know have had a a higher likelihood of letting you down or doing something wrong to you or betraying you or something like that. In fact, typically we hurt most the people that we love. For one, we think, well, they'll put up with it. And one of my friends says, well, I know my wife will get over She's not going to divorce me. You know, that kind of a thing. And so we tend to do that. It can be much more difficult to love those whom we know very well. The apostles spent three years together. And you can imagine that they knew each other well enough that they, they could probably tell you what they didn't like about each other or how some of them would do things they didn't like or let each other down. And so Jesus says, you need to make a concerted and a focused effort for those whom you love and for those who have given you reason maybe time and again to refuse to show that to them. He says, love them. I'm going to move on quickly, as quickly as I can, to the third point. That goes into the next chapter, chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses... Really, verses 1 through 6 hardship in a particular at the moment they were going to go through some difficulty hardship has a tendency of blinding us from eternal realities from eternal truths we miss the forest for the trees a difficult thing happens and uh, for some reason we don't have any recollection whatsoever of the resurrection of Christ and the promises we have of eternal life. It just kind of goes out the window when we're having a bad day sometimes. He knew they were going to have one of the worst days of their life, if not the worst. And so he wants to charge them with looking towards the reward, having an eternal perspective, being able to see through spiritual eyes rather than physical eyes. They need to be reminded That no matter what happens at the present moment, there is a place prepared for eternity and they needed to set their gaze on that. John 14 verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. We need to make it a habit of stepping, stepping back from this physical reality that's kind of right here in front of our face and step back from it and try to see things through God's perspective. Being able to see today within the perspective of eternity. We need to make a habit of that. Looking at the whole picture that God sees the, Thessalon, uh, the church in Thessalonica. They are described as being anxious for Christ. You go to First Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. Paul describes them this way. He says, "...and you became followers of us of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe." For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. Their, their reputation preceded them, he says. For they themselves declare concerning us, what matter of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned away from the physical and the temporary things that blind us from eternal truths. They turned away from those, and they looked towards eternity." And they longed for it. He says, For they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so He needed them to know this. But you can imagine how the things that He says in this section of Scripture in John... How the meaning of them just began to overflow and radiate after they witnessed and realized the resurrection, because they saw they saw the power behind the words in front of their face. You go a few chapters down in First Thessalonians to chapter four, verse sixteen. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. He was giving them words of comfort. that's the words we need to give of comfort. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in what is to come. And our hope is not a sort of a wishing for the thing that is improbable our hope is absolutely secure in the resurrection. And so we don't have a hollow hope. We have a faith that is hope-filled and guaranteed. We need to have the mindset, you know, Jesus knew He was about to leave and he He was going to be resurrected and then He was going to ascend. The church in Thessalonica was looking for the return of Christ and we don't know if we're going to leave this body before the world's destroyed or if we'll be here when the earth just we don't know but we need to have the mindset of i'm leaving pretty soon that needs to be the mindset because it's absolutely true no matter how long we live our life is a vapor which means that a proper perspective of reality is well i'm about to leave and i'm about to be with the lord and so so what So that changes everything. It changes my perspective. It changes how I react to when I go to get a a cup of coffee and it's burnt already because it's been sitting there too long. And I begin to get caught up in these meaningless temporary inconveniences. Instead of continuously thinking, I'm about to be with my Lord, it's going to happen any minute relative to eternity. That's what the church of Thessalonica did. That's why their reputation and faithfulness... Preceded them out throughout these other uh, these these other provinces, and they comfort one and they comforted one another with the words of hope that they had. Jesus says, he gives them this little nugget. He says that where I am, there you may be also. There is this promise. And then in verse 5, John 14, verse 5, Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Which really ushers us into the next point. But I'm going to stop here and say this, that the question of how can I be where He is too One of my favorite sayings is, it's not rocket surgery. Jesus is saying it's actually pretty simple. If you can let go of the physical, put yourself last as the last priority, choosing to love those who are around you to show that you're my disciples. If you can look towards the reward and understand that I'm I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the way to the life that you want, the life eternal. I am the truth of that reality. I guarantee it by the actions that I'm going to take subsequent to these words. I am the life which you find in the resurrection, which means I'm the life that you truly want. These are some of His last words before He dies. Be a servant. Love one another. Look to the reward. We don't need to let our heart be troubled. We need to hold close to Christ in His words, because in the same way that they were about to enter in a dark place in their life, it is the reality of all of our lives that as we go through it from now till the end of our lives, there is going to be darkness there that if we do not hold close to the words of Christ, we'll caught up in those things. We'll be blinded by those temporary things that ultimately don't matter unless we let them control us and destroy us. On the other hand, we can take the hand of Christ, we can be where He is, the place where He's prepared for us. This evening I'm going to cover the other four, and I encourage you to come back. I appreciate your time and attention. In thinking about the encouraging words of Christ and His impending death, the way that you can be with Christ, the way that you can come to the Father through Him as He is the only way is by joining in with the death that was going to happen shortly in John and then being united with His burial that happens and His resurrection by being baptized into Christ. By joining into that union, you can have a hope that is absolutely guaranteed and has nothing to do with any of the physical things. None of them can separate you from that. And so if you have a need, we're going to have a song of encouragement. We can pray for you. We can lift you up. We can study with you. You can become a Christian. You can have that guarantee of eternal life. Please make that need known as we stand and sing the song.
1: Hear not little flocks <laughs> that the Savior Eli, The Father has will that the kingdom be gone. Father, Lord, so not your God must within ye be My sheep and my lamb must be whiter than For that lesson, uh, Carrie. That was uh, very good, and we look forward to the uh, rest of it tonight. Let's sing one more song before we dismiss. uh, Number um, 72. Number 72 Higher Ground. sing the first and fourth verses. I am pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as high onward bound, Lord, blend my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on earth. I my feet on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I'll pray till heaven i found. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven. Unstable land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lessons we've heard today. May you the right word to give us and may us the ability to present these lessons. Help us to think seriously, Father, about what we've heard this morning. That we need to humble ourselves, be servants of yours, to love one another, and thus look forward to that hope we have when this life is over. Continue with us, with us, and help us to go our ways. And give us our sins, we ask for Christ's name. Amen. <coughs>